Hello, everyone. It's good to see you. Now, for those of you who are missing um, or wanting music, just to let you know that uh, we will be having music in our worship services on a um, bi-weekly, how do you say that, fortnightly, bi-weekly? Anyways, no, fortnightly. <laughs> we'll be having it fortnightly um, starting in February um, as people are still um, away in Jan. Um, I hope it will not be the norm that we begin each sermon with a story about our trip to the emergency department. Um, I know last week Roy told you about how he ended up in the emergency department for eight hours. Um, and I've got another fresh Kim family emergency department story to tell today, which is that last Saturday after we had our wonderful service, it was so good to see everybody. We chatted and you know, I think it was around 630 by the time, you know, we, uh, Clean up and packed up, and we're actually leaving, about to leave. And James and Kim were the last faithful ones here. Um, and Roy and I were just chatting with them for a few minutes as we were literally on, you know, about to leave. When I hear this wail, and uh, I knew that from the sound that was Micah, and I thought, oh, he must have bumped his knee, or, you know, let me go see what, what happens. So then I come over and I discovered like his hand over his eye and there's blood gushing out and I did what you're not supposed to do in an emergency which is I completely panicked and left my bleeding child on the floor to go run to Roy to be like my guy's eyes bleeding and um I also did a second thing you're not supposed to do in that situation which is I yelled at my poor bleeding child this is why I told you not to run inside. <laughs> and um, what happened? And was like demanding to know what caused, you know, the exact details of what happened. Now, Roy did what I should have done, which is to to um, actually tend to his wounds. Um, so Roy, actually James and Roy got some paper towels and, you know, wiped him up. And thankfully we discovered that it wasn't his eye. Um, he had run into this music stand. Um, and luckily... It, it was his eyebrow. And um, so we're very grateful that it wasn't his eye that he um, needed stitches for. So James and Kim very kindly closed up, you know, locked up the church while we got into the car and went to emergency. Um, and the Royal Children's Hospital staff were lovely. And three hours later, Micah was stitched up and glued up and um, home. And, of course, it meant we couldn't go to Mornington um, for our annual leave last little bit but that's all right we stayed home and had fun redecorating our furniture <laughs> um but you know on the way to the hospital i oh you know I, I forgot to say this part when i was yelling at micah um to, you know scolding him for having gotten hurt micah was there he was like bleeding and he was sobbing and he said to me you know mid-tears that's not helpful right now <laughs> please stop yelling at me and so on the way to the hospital, I did say to Micah, like I'm like holding the, you know, the towel to him to put pressure on his bleeding. And I did apologize. And Micah being the good, good boy you are with a big heart readily forgave me. But throughout the week, I kept reflecting on my response to a child I love. And yet my response was, you know, scolding, blaming interrogating right um instead of actually comforting or actually stopping the bleeding um or even offering uh you know just help he needed first aid 
not the first degree um, questioning that I gave him. And as I was reflecting on this throughout the week, I thought to myself, mercy, how many times do we treat people like that? When people are hurt in our society, in our community, crying out for help, real practical help and comfort, but there we are analyzing and arguing about who's to blame. And I thought to myself, imagine if God treated us like that. That when our choices leave us broken and hurt, we imagine God frowning with his arms folded and saying, I told you so. Or that when we're overwhelmed with pain and regret, how often do we think God is disciplining us? Is this what our picture of God is like? And sadly, many people do picture a God like that. A God who is disappointed in us when we fail. A God who turns away when we have made wrong choices. A God who punishes when we rebel. A God who always demands more, more sacrifice, more commitment, more obedience, but is never satisfied. Sadly, this picture of God has been portrayed by the very followers of God. Because for, for many, many generations, whether in explicit form in words and deeds or implicitly by our critical judgmental attitudes we have created this picture of God as a God of condemnation but is this who God really is my favorite book I don't know why this microphone is falling my favorite book of the Bible um, is the book of John partly because John was one of Jesus's closest disciples and so I feel like the book of John really shows an intimate picture of Jesus. And so we see in the book of John this picture of Jesus and God that is presented. He writes in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. In other words, John says, we have all had this foggy picture of God in the darkness. But Jesus has come to give us light and to give us a clearer, fuller picture of who God is, a fuller picture of God's glory. And he mentions a man named Moses. Now Moses was a man who in the 16th century BC, God called to lead a people group called the Israelites out of slavery in the land of Egypt to a, a land um, that they later on um, settled. And God empowered this Moses to perform several miracles. And they're referred to as the Ten Plagues. And these miracles or plagues finally convinced Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And so the exodus uh, that we know of today. And God gave this nation, this new nation, laws. Not just the moral laws of the Ten Commandments, but civil laws and religious laws, relational laws um, for each other. And Moses wrote all of this down as well as the history of creation and the fall and the interaction of humanity and God. And so all of these writings of Moses, which we know now as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, 
are known collectively in the Jewish culture as the law, the Torah. So when John here says, hey, Moses gave you the law, he's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the full revelation of God that they had, right? God gave his pic a picture of himself through Moses to God's people. And John says, you know, that was glory. That was great. But now we have Jesus. He says, through Moses, we got the law. Through Jesus, we have grace and truth. Thanks to Jesus, we're able to experience and see what that grace looked like lived out here on earth. So while Moses' mission was to bring about justice, right, and, and, and the laws of God, um, especially as portrayed in the Ten Commandments, they show us an incredible picture of God who we need, right? A God of justice, a God of morality. We need that picture. We need that for a God who's in charge of the universe. But through Jesus, we now see that in addition to justice, there is mercy. And while Moses' mission was to bring, bring and show that justice by freeing the slaves, his very first public miracle was turning water into blood. And here, the contrast of Jesus, his mission was to bring grace. And his very first public miracle was turning water into wine. So that the hosts of a wedding would not be embarrassed because they had run out, because they had underestimated the refreshments their guests would need. It was a backroom miracle, very different from Moses, you know, big public display. But here was Jesus at a wedding in a small town in the regions of Galilee. And no one even knew he had done this except for his closest disciples and his mother. Of this miracle of turning the water into wine as a favor to his mother, as a gift of grace to the guests who were there to celebrate a wedding. And this first miracle of Jesus lets us know that there is nothing insignificant to God that he doesn't care about, right? Lost keys, lost toys, daily tasks, those small things that we might feel silly asking God for help with. Jesus is saying, hey, I care about those things because you care about those things, because they matter to you. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, 29 to 31, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? In our context, I would say, are not two bin chickens worth nothing? <laughs> Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many bin chickens. And to a group of mothers who wanted to bring their children to be blessed by Jesus, and, you know, in that society, the children and the women, you know, were disregarded at the bottom of, of the totem pole of hierarchy. But Jesus says to them in Matthew chapter 19, verses 15 and 14 and 15, because the disciples were saying, oh, Jesus is too busy, too important for you. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And he took them in his arms and he cuddled them, and he blessed them, and he showed them that there is no one that is insignificant in his eyes. Jesus did rebuke the hypocrisy and the pride and the condescension of the Pharisees, but Jesus never scolded those who were down and out. Jesus never rejected the outcasts 
the sinners, those who are awkward or sick or unpopular or poor or smelly or dirty or young or old, greedy, political, educated, whoever you were, Jesus wanted to be with you. Jesus ministered to you. That's why on one night he could have a midnight conversation with an elite, educated, powerful person like Nicodemus. And then on another day, have a noonday conversation with the foreign women who had been cast out from her society. When talking with Nicodemus, Jesus clearly defined his mission and his message. He said in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus did not come to condemn, but to save. Jesus lived this message out when a group of people dragged a woman who was caught in the act of adultery to Jesus, and they said, well, clearly guilty. What do you say we do with her? And everybody had picked up a stone, ready to throw it at her, ready to judge her. Clearly she was guilty. Clearly this is the punishment at that time that they thought was fair. And Jesus said, let the person who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And the record reads in John chapter 8, verses 9 to 12, that those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Women, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And Jesus said to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You see, Jesus knows we're guilty. But instead of pointing our faults out, instead of condemning us to our consequences, Jesus defends us. Jesus frees us. Jesus empowers us to go out. And he says very clearly, I do not condemn you. The disciple John, uh, in addition to the book of John, wrote three letters, at least three letters that we know of, uh, to the early Christian churches. And in the first letter, 1 John chapter 2, he wrote, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Right? Of course it's better if we don't sin, if we don't get hurt, if we're not you know, in trouble. But if anyone does sin, right? if you do mess up, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. It says, not only is Jesus your sacrifice, he is your advocate. He's your defense lawyer. Now, during the, um, during the break, little confession, I really like criminal drama. <laughs> like, I like cozy mysteries as, when I'm reading fiction. And if I'm watching something, I like to watch criminal drama. And, and one thing is very clear when you watch these things, which is that no matter how guilty you are, if you have a really great defense lawyer, you have a chance. Right? And the opposite is also true. You could be innocent, but if you have a crummy lawyer, you might go to jail. And if you're in the U.S., you might get the death penalty. Right? 
And here in, in, this, in this passage, John is saying, My dear children, I have good news for you. I don't want you to mess up. But if you do mess up, guess what? The top defense lawyer is going to be pro bono working on your case. And not only that, when that sentence gets given, that you are guilty, that you do have to pay a fine or you do have to go to jail or you do get the death penalty, that defense lawyer is going to take off his or her suit and pay the price. Get handcuffed and taken away in your place so that you can be free. And that's the metaphor that he uses for Jesus, that Jesus is our advocate, our lawyer, right? Defending us, but he's also our sacrifice, the one who pays the price. And he does this not just once, but twice. Three times every time we mess up. Now, if you're anything like me, that makes you feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> right? Every time. Like, where's, where's the limit? Surely after a while, God says, enough. You're on your own. Right? Surely at some point, God says, you haven't learned your mistake. You're going back to that again? Come on. But when Jesus was talking to Peter, Peter asked Jesus, how many times should we forgive? Seven times? Now Peter was being very generous here, right? Can you imagine forgiving the same person seven times for the same thing? That's, that's very generous. We would call that person very forgiving. But Jesus responds to Peter and he says, well, not seven times. Seventy times seven. And then to show how even that's not enough, Jesus told a story. He said, Peter, listen to this. He said, there once was a king who's, who's, who was going through his accounts. And at the end of the accounting, they realized in the audit that there was a servant who owed 200,000 years' work of money. So it was 10,000 talents, and it took 20 years of labor for a day laborer to earn one talent. So 200,000 years of work, um, uh, of labor money to pay off. Now this, it was customary at the time that if you couldn't pay off a debt, because it would be impossible for anyone to pay off that much debt. And if you couldn't pay it off, you and your family would be sold into slavery and you and your family and generations would have to work until that debt was paid off. That could be four, five, six, seven, eight, ten generations. And the man said to the king, I'm so sorry. I have pity on me. I, have no, I can't pay you back and I don't want my family to suffer. Just have mercy on me. And Jesus tells the story and he says the king had compassion on him and said, okay, just you, sir, and the family can go off. No. Or he didn't say, okay, so serve me for 10 years and then you're off. No, the king had mercy on the man and said, your entire debt is forgiven. And there's more to the story than that. But I want to emphasize that portion of the story because the king forgives this impossible amount because of his great mercy. And that's how amazing God's grace is for us. 
in Matthew 18, 27, at the end of that story, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. And imagine God looking at us and saying, this is the heart of God, that he forgives us not once, not, not 490 times, but as many times as we need, however large and how impossible the debt, Jesus pays for it all. Paul was a first century missionary who was a powerhouse for God. And he, he wrote um, a letter to the church, um, to the Christians that were in Rome. And we, we know that letter today is the book of Romans. And in it, he talks about how amazing God's grace is. And he talks about how we need God's grace because we are human and we struggle and we mess up. And, you know, what we know of Paul from history, we know that he was an amazing leader for God. And yet even Paul struggled. He wrote in Romans chapter 7, verses 18 onwards. He says, I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, for I have a desire to do what is good. Right? Paul says, I, I want to do the right thing, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. I don't know if any of you can resonate with that. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is saying, I want to do the right things, but I can't bring myself to do it consistently. And I don't want to do these bad things, but I keep doing them. And, and, and he's feeling that great controversy in his heart and mind. And he's saying, how do I get relief from this? And the answer is through Jesus. Exactly how through Jesus. We know that he has died for us. But how does that help us? Paul continues in Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. I want you to repeat that to yourself, right? There is no condemnation. This is the opposite of what we often think when we do wrong. And I know my boys think this all the time, that this, as soon as they do something, their immediate thought is, uh-oh, I'm going to get in trouble, right? Mom, mommy's going to yell at me, I'm going to get in trouble. But Micah, there is no condemnation in Jesus. Right? When you do wrong, Jesus will actually come and help you. <laughs> Jesus will never yell at you right? because there is no condemnation in Jesus. And he goes on to say, oops, sorry, Romans chapter 8, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Um, <laughs> um, I love her so much. Okay, so what does this mean, right? Because Paul uses a lot of, uh, Paul was actually a lawyer. And so Paul uses a lot of lawyery jargon. And so let's, let's, let's put this in layman's terms. Paul is saying, um, look, 
we keep messing up, and that's the reality. And for those of you who have ever tried to do a New Year's resolution, it's it's like almost the end of January. I don't know how many of you are succeeding, but I've already failed in mine right, multiple times, and it's only Jan. It's really difficult to change. It's really difficult to do um, the right things and to stop the wrong things. And God is saying, I know it's hard. I understand. That's why Jesus came in the flesh. You know, have you ever wondered why couldn't Jesus just come down as he was from heaven and die for us and go back? Why did he have to be inside Mary's womb? Why did he have to be born as a baby and then have to spend the years growing up and becoming a man? Why? It's because Jesus had to be flesh. He had to take on our human bodies and experience what it was like to be here on earth to show us that he understands. And he had to live a life of righteousness as a human being in order to meet the requirements of the law so that he could be our perfect substitute. Only another human being could be our substitute. And so that's why Jesus came and died for us. And that's why we now get to claim Jesus' righteousness for our own. So that when we fall, we can cry out, Abba, Father. We're hurt. And that when we're bruised from our struggle against temptation, when we've lost, that God is there to embrace us with open arms, to comfort us, and to tell us it's going to be okay. You know, when Micah fell last week, uh, when he knocked into the music stand and fell, um, and when I went in panic mode to Roy, Roy came and, and, and not just wiped Micah, but Roy did something that as I was watching, he was like, oh, yep, that's what I should have done, which is he said to Micah, you're going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Just calming him, letting him know it's going to be okay. And that helped, didn't it, Micah? Yeah. I was not helping, was I? <laughs> and so God looks at us when we're down and out, right? God looks at us when we're bruised and bleeding. God looks at us when we have messed up and done the wrong thing, and he's not there saying, told you so. He's not there saying, that's why sin is bad. He's not there, right, with all, all, the, all the wrong things that we often hear from other people when we mess up. No, God is there saying, you're going to be okay. I've got you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take you to the hospital. I'm going to make sure you get the healing that you need. I'm going to be with you. You're going to be okay. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 31 to 34. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Did you catch that? That not only, not only is he our, our, our um, atoning sacrifice, not only did he die for us, but he's pleading for us. That even when you are not praying, right? Even when you are far from God, Jesus never stops praying for you. Jesus is always interceding for you. 
Jesus is devoted to you. He holds nothing back. And God pours out all the resources of heaven so that we can be saved. There is no condemnation, only grace, only love, only kindness. Now imagine a parent or a partner or friend or a boss like that. That no matter how many times you mess up, no matter how many times you're late, no matter how many times you, you know, do the wrong things or um, how you treat them, that they are supportive, forgiving, and patient. They tell you they believe in you. They tell you it's going to be okay. They've got your back. They're on your side. Guess what? If you have someone like that, chances are it might take time, but chances are you're going to stop doing the things that annoy them. You're going to stop hurting them on purpose or even unintentionally. You're going to be more careful to treat this person who loves you so much a little bit better. And that's what happens in our relationship with God when we finally accept fully the fact that there is no condemnation from God. When we feel safe with Him, when we trust in that kind of devotion to us in time, that's when we start obeying Him out of love, not fear. That's when we start giving to God because of joy and not obligation. It all starts and continues and ends with the understanding that there is no condemnation in God. Paul ends chapter 8 with this amazing passage. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No, in all these things, he says, more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus You see, it is this conviction that there is no condemnation, this conviction that God's love is is so great for us. It's that conviction that gave Paul peace and victory and motivation and power to live his life for God. So how can we gain such a conviction? How can we too be so convinced in our minds? Jesus said in John chapter 8, after he freed that woman caught in adultery, after he told her, I don't condemn you, and after he said, I'm the light of the world, he turned to the others and he said, if you abide in my word, and you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You see, the more we abide in God's word, hearing it, read, preached, shared, reading it, studying it, meditating on it, understanding it, living it out, accepting it, the more we take in what God is saying to us, the more that truth makes us free. Free from the guilt, free from our sense of condemnation, free to embrace fully that amazing grace that finally can heal and save us. If you're not already doing a Bible reading plan, I want to invite you to join me in the month of February as I read through the book of John again. I find the book of John a really great book that reveals a picture of God that is centered on grace. And um, I referred to the book of John a lot today to whet your appetite for this book. 
um, as a preview, and I would love for you to read through the book of John with me. So this is a Bible reading plan called Jewels from John, and it's 30 days, but you know what? It's okay if you take longer than 30 days. The point is just to get started and to do it. Um, and this devotional has a little bit of a reflection thought from the person who wrote it, as well as the Bible passages. And so um, it's, it's through version Bible app, which I think most people have. It's free if you uh, want to download it. And you just have to scan this QR code now and accept. It'll say, Jinha wants to start this um, reading plan with you. Just accept. And then um, you can start reading. I mean, officially it starts in Feb, but you can start today. It, it's all about just getting started. Now, what I would love to have from you is, as you're reading through, as you're going through this Bible reading plan, if you can just, on your computer um, or on a notebook, just jot down some of your thoughts, your reflection, your, your questions, something that resonated with you from that day or that week, something that challenged you, or maybe simply your favorite verse from that day, um, or your least favorite verse. Um, but yeah, if you could just take notes, and then at the end of each week, right, just send me what you're comfortable sharing. So from your notes, if there was like, you know what, this verse was my favorite, just send that to me. Or this passage was confusing. Or you know, if you just send me whatever um, from that week that you are comfortable sharing with me. And just send it through to me at the end of each week. And what I would like to do is then compile those into um, uh, a blog that I'll put on our church blog each week. And I just want to do this during the month of February. Um, and so it's a little variation from our daily nuggets. Um, we will still do daily nuggets later in the year. But this way, you're reading on your, the Bible on your own, but sharing your thoughts, which I then will you know, collate and put on our church blog so that we can all um, see what what's been on our, on our minds um, as we go through this book. And it is my prayer that as we reflect, whether it's the book of John or whatever else it is that you're reading at the moment, that as we read the words of God, especially as we look at the life of Jesus, I pray that we would find a freedom and joy and peace in knowing that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Danny, Father, I want to thank you that you don't condemn us that when we mess up and when we fall and we make mistakes and we do the wrong thing, that you are that amazing father running to us with open arms, embracing us and calling the fatted calf and putting the ring on our finger and just happy that we're back rather than scolding us or blaming us or interrogating us. I'm so grateful, Father God, that you treat us so much better than we treat each other and the way that we even treat ourselves. And we ask that we would be able to immerse ourselves in that truth, that we would be able to, to remind ourselves of it every day so that as we believe it, we will allow your Holy Spirit to then transform our hearts so that we can worship you with true gratitude and that we can love others with true mercy, having received mercy ourselves. And Father, I want to pray that um, as we as a church community go through the book of John together, that you will open our eyes to see just how amazing your grace truly is. And that, Father God, that as a result of abiding in your word, that we will be a community that not only is free ourselves, but can share this great news with others, that the Son makes us free. Um, I want to pray for those who are sick or away this weekend, or those celebrating the Lunar New Year with families, that you watch over them. And until we meet again, 
uh, may we be reminded every day um, of the great truth that you love us. In Jesus' name we pray.